Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Surf's Up, a Beach Boys podcast safari. I'm Mark Dillon, author of 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and I'm here today with my partner, Phil Migliorati. Hello, Phil. Hello, Mark. Good to hear you and see you today. Yeah, we're doing it on Zoom for the first time, so we're actually seeing each other on video for the first time, so it's a whole new experience. Um, We were on a bit of a hiatus, but we're back now, and we have an episode for you today that I'm sure you're going to love. Becoming the Beach Boys is a book that came out five years ago that really delivers on its title. It tells in incredible detail the story of the group, starting from when Brian Wilson and Al Jardine graduated from Hawthorne High in 1960 to the formation of the band through to the end of 1963, when the group had already established themselves as America's preeminent rock and roll band. Today, we have with us the author of this amazing book, Jim Murphy. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Phil. Good to be with you. And you're coming to us today from Bowie, Maryland, correct? That's correct. Outside of uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, there you're a veterinarian specifically for companion animals, correct? Yep. Every animal except the horse and those that we consume. (laughs) Well, I was just uh, observing to you earlier that uh, here in Toronto, I've noticed more people with puppies than ever before. So I imagine it's the same where you are. It is actually. For the first time in 44 years, our local county shelter has been empty. So we're seeing a, a phenomenal uh, increase in adoption of, uh, of cats and dogs, which is uh, heartwarming, actually. It's a nice little side effect of the pandemic. Let me just say, I mean, it's been five years since your book came out, but I only read it this year. And let me just say that it is a staggering work of Beach Boy scholarship. Those who have read it already know exactly what I mean, but to those who haven't, Uh, those who think they might know it all, I implore you to buy this book. You will learn so much about the band that you didn't know before. So again, congratulations on on this great achievement. Well, thank you so much. There's so much to talk about, uh, and I'm sure Phil wants to jump in with some questions as well, but why don't we start at the beginning? And that is, when did you become a Beach Boys fan? I mean, you you, you touch on this in the book. I I think it was when your brother ran home after hearing Good Vibrations on the radio and said, uh, man, we got to buy this record. Yeah, that was it. I was 10 years old in 1966, 10 years and a couple of months. And uh, my older brother, Rich, he's six years older than me. So he would have been 16. Literally came running home, covered in perspiration, you know, had playing a, a, a basketball game on a concrete court. You know, we grew up in the Bronx in a very urban area. And, uh, you know, we weren't necessarily Beach Boy fans. Uh, we had gotten Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows uh, that summer for uh, our sister's birthday. Um, and we had a couple of singles, I think, you know, by the Beach Boys, but not real fans. Uh, but he heard this song on the radio and uh, turned out to be Good Vibrations. And, um, you know, at the at the time, you know, the disc jockeys didn't always say the name of the song or even the band. I think but at that particular time, they, he did say like, and that was the Beach Boys. And I think my brother was um, was kind of blown away even at that point. Like, you know, like, wow, that was the Beach Boys because it was just so different for them, you know. Um, and he was just like. Um, like a heat-seeking missile. It was like, we have to get that record. And we literally left the apartment and, uh, and just went on this trek. And, you know, because it was um, New York City, it was very dense as far as record stores go. So there were a lot of stores to check out. So needless they hit four or five of them and we, we kept striking out. We could not get the single. So we finally found the record. We brought it home. We played it. And we, you know, the proverbial, we just beat the hell out of that record, actually. Uh, we flipped it over. We weren't too impressed with instrumentals at that time. You know, it took a while for, uh, for us to appreciate. Let's go away for a while. Um, but we just loved that record. And that from that day on, I can trace my um, my history largely due, you know, due to my older brother uh, influencing me. 
And right. you went on to see yeah. a lot of shows and you outlined that in the book, you, you list all the shows that you've seen. So I'm wondering, first of all, what was the first show that you saw and, and what was the most memorable show if it wasn't that first one? It might've been both actually, two birds with one stone. It was Carnegie Hall and uh, they opened up with, wouldn't it be nice? And, uh, you know, Brian was not with them, of course. Bruce had, you know, Bruce had already joined the band. Uh, but in the, in the acoustics of Carnegie Hall and to hear the Beach Boys in the early 70s, it was just, I'll never forget. It was my, one of my first concerts. I was still fairly young. Let's see, seven, early 70s, that would have been like uh, 14, 15. Um, so it was one of my first concerts, actually. And again, my brother, it was, it was just me and Rich. And, you know, to open up with Wouldn't It Be Nice, it was just phenomenal, phenomenal. I, I, I might have lost the words, actually, for how great the sound was in that concert and how good they were. It's probably my favorite era of the band. You know, so one of the reasons why I'm so looking forward to the Field Flows box set that's coming up. Um, but just a great, great concert. I mean, I've, and I've seen them probably dozens of times since then. Um, and always, always a, good, a great show. Always a great show. But to see them in the early 70s in Carnegie Hall was um, was really, really special. Okay, you mentioned uh, the number of concerts that he uh, identifies in the book. Jim, did you keep a log of this, a journal? Or a, I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts. I can't say that I could list every one of them. Yeah, I try, I'm a, um, and a sort of an obsessive collector of sorts. And I've got this great- Oh, we hadn't book. noticed that by reading your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and actually that's, that's kind of what led to the book actually. It's like, I've got this great collection, uh, especially of the early stuff. So, you know, why not turn it into something useful? So part of it was the ticket collection, the ticket stuff, but also Andrew Doe's uh, great website, you know, Bellagio10452, which is a terrific, terrific website. I mean, the best website of the Beach Boys as far as research. I consulted that website literally every day during the eight years that I wrote the book. I mean, it's just a terrific website. So part of it was actually going through his website and say, oh, yeah, I was at that show. So for the ones, for the gaps that I had in my, either in my ticket stuff collection or oh, just my memory, um, I consulted on Andrew's website and uh, kind of filled in the gaps. So I've gotten to meet each of them personally and present a copy of the book, um, which has been, you know, a huge highlight for me, of course. Oh, sure. Um, and they were all just so gracious, you know, so gracious. It was, you know, very, very rewarding. I got autographed copies of the book and uh, Mike Love actually asked me to autograph his copy of the book, which I found kind of interesting and fun. Well, but, bravo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike and Bruce could not have been sweeter and nicer to my wife and I um, when we saw them down here in Maryland. Well, Jim, it's certainly a gift to those of us who are Beach Boy fans and those of us who are Beach Boy fanatics. It's a special gift because you have kind of collated all the, can I say, stories of their origin and uh, I think sifted through it, made connections and uh, I don't know if anybody's giving you feedback that something should be changed or not, but but I think you've uh, taken us back in time and walked us through almost every day of that uh, of that experience in those early years. Before we came online for Zoom, I was thinking uh, 59 years ago, Beach Boy families were preparing for Christmas, but they were about to have a life-changing experience. And I I'm guessing if you could probably tell us what they were each doing this day 59 years ago. That's an overstatement, but that's pretty much how detailed your book is. And uh, as with Mark, I truly appreciate it. Sorry, to touch upon that, uh, one person who did have a correction, actually two, actually. And one was um, one was very welcome and one was a little embarrassing. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Bruce Johnson pointed out on, and I feel what pages in the book, and I and I knew this, and how it got by me, I am still tortured at by not at night time. <laughs> but uh, it was a record that should have been Jan and Arnie, and not Jan and Dean. Um, and I knew that I've got the record in my collection. It just it got by every editing level, and there were dozens of le- of editing levels. And Bruce read it. He loved the book. He said some really, really um, complimentary things about it that they really appreciated. Um, it got me several tickets to concerts. I saw them at the Kennedy Center here in Washington a number of years ago, courtesy of Bruce, and got backstage, which was, you know, just really, really nice and sweet. Um, but when he wrote that back, I, oh, I was like, oh, of course it's Jane and Arnie. I knew that. I knew that. The second one, I've seen Al Jardine's um, solo shows. Al, Al plays here in Annapolis, Maryland, um, in this little place called the Ramshead, which holds about maybe little 300 people, a real small place. And uh, so I see Al every time he comes by, actually. And uh, I've always had a chance to chat with him afterwards. And um, and, uh, and he knows about the book. And, you know, he's, he's read the book. And he told me that a couple of things about the Jardine family history that eh, are not quite correct, actually. And... Um, Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to speak to Al, or actually any of the Beach Boys when I wrote the book. So um, a lot of what I have in the book about um, Al's family history and their trek from Ohio to New York to San Francisco to L.A., where he eventually meets Brian at Hawthorne High School, I had to do basically by secondary sources and newspaper research. A lot of Ohio newspapers you know, have the things in there. Um, the Rochester Institute of Technology, where Donald Jardine worked, um, had a um, company newsletter. He was featured in that prominently, so tracking them, tracking down those newsletters, that helped. So anyway, piecing together Al's family history, his mom and his dad primarily, um, um, I have something in there, I think, in the book about how the grandfather, the father's father, um, um, possibly had worked with Thomas Edison on the idea of an electric car. And Al said, well, that's not really completely true or whatever. So um, so um, I, I hope to do a second edition, actually. Um, there's enough new shows and enough little tweaks that I like to do and um, so many more photographs that got left out and other things that, um, that I like to put either in the appendices or whatever. So, But I'm hoping... Um, I'm hoping that maybe in, work, in working with Al, I can um, you know, get a little bit more of the, of the history down. Um, because of the surviving Beach Boys... Um, you know, the, the questions that I still have, and I've got a fair number of questions, actually, even after, even after writing the book, um, that I would still like answered or defined better. Um, it's really just Al and, and Mike, I think, that would have a lot of light to share on that, uh, actually. You know, Brian, as much as we all love him, is a, is a difficult interview and uh, not always reliable. And I'm not so sure he's not a he's not a backward looking guy kind of thing. I mean, Although I ha- I think that you know his memory is surprisingly sharp, like for recordings, like it, like yeah. you know I, I understand what you mean. He is a very tough interview indeed, and he doesn't really yeah. like doing interviews. But sometimes he amazes me by catching a mistake that I will make, or he'll talk about something that was recorded a long time ago. He seems to have a pretty sharp memory for those kind of details when it comes to what happened in the studio. Yeah, and I would love to talk to him about that first recording session of surfing if he, you know, if he ever wanted to do that. Of course, I mean, I'd be available at a minute's notice. You know, but I would love to talk to him about those early recording sessions. You know, what it was like. You know, um, and you know, to try to dispel some of the myths and you know, you know, the whole. Did you play the bottom of a garbage can? Did you play the <laughs> snare drum with your finger, kind of thing? You know, you know, all these stories. You know, you're like, okay, you know, I mean, and that was part of writing the book was. Um, Okay, just put aside everything, you know, I mean, obviously, I read every secondary source, every book, 
literally every magazine article on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, the UK and, 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 and our fledgling rock and roll press in the 60s, um, and, and created this spreadsheet of, okay, what's been known about everything? Everything from Brian's first car, when he got it, when did he meet the four freshmen, Judy Bowles, you know, you know, all these things. And, and, and wipe the slate clean and say, okay, don't accept anything for fact. Try to prove it again. Try to, you know, try to see where the documentary evidence lies where you can prove these things again. Um, and some things you just can't prove. You know, I, I don't think you can prove. A good example is who named the Beach Boys. I mean, I think I came up with literally at least four different versions. Um, and if the Beach Boys had not been successful, no one would have cared who named them. But they became successful, and then everybody wanted a piece of the action, I think. So, you know, Bruce Morgan was positive his mother named them. Uh, uh, Saracino was positive that, you know, he named them. Russ Reagan was positive that he named them. Uh, the Dix brothers were positive that they named them. So, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, you know, the, the, the story that perseveres, I think, and is probably, it rang the most true to me, actually. Um, and you have to have a bit of a BS detector when you're, when you're interviewing folks, you know, in a nice way, in a, in a cordial, nice way. You have to see if they're, you know, if what they are telling you sounds, uh, sounds truthful, you know, and not, not, not that they're being malicious, but, um, you know, people, people either forget things, um, the ravages of time on our memory, and sometimes people like to inflate their importance in the story. Um, I think the story that rings true is the Russ Reagan story. You know, I mean, that's, that sounds true to me. And I, I kind of say that in the book. It's, I lay out all the different options. You know, this is what one person said. These are all the different theories. You, Mr. and Mrs. Reader, can decide for yourself. Um, but uh, I, I kind of think the Russ Reagan story rings true, actually. What uh, inspired you for this approach to focus on 1960 to 1963? Is it because, you know, the next book is going to be 1964 to 1967? Or, or was it just that this era, there were so many contradictions, as you say, that you think this one is, is, is the chunk of time that really needed the most new research? Yeah, I think that's it, actually, Mark. Um, you know, having read every book, I always came away with more questions about the early days than, than answers. And not to disparage any writer, because once you know, once you've written a book, you've got nothing but the utmost respect for any any author, because it's really, really hard work. Um, but you know, I read every single book, and you know, and these were usually career-spanning books. So you know, if you've got 300 pages to cover 40 years or 50 years of a group like the Beach Boys, um, you don't have a lot of time to spend on the early years. Um, so the early years were always given kind of short shrift. I thought they were kind of covered over really quickly. They were glossed over a little bit, and a lot of it was repetitive. So, you know, if you look at the Leaf book in 78, and then the Byron Price book in 79, and then, you know, subsequent authors, you can see where each author, you know, and every author builds on the others. And I owe a great debt to all of those folks, actually. Um, so every author owes a debt to the, to the authors in front of them. Um, but you can see where they kind of just kind of copied the story, or, you know, they didn't, they didn't really dig any further. Um, and it kind of bothered me, actually. And, and again, no disrespect to them, but it kind of bothered me. So I thought, well, you know, what can I do to find out the truth? You know, what can I, what can I do to, um, to find out what really, really happened? You know, because it's not that long ago. You know, I mean, I, was, I started the book, I guess, in 06. So, you know, was it, you know, I thought, you know, some of these people are still alive. Let me see if I can find them. And, and, and let me just see if I can, you know, figure out what really happened. But, um, and there's some really good books. I mean, like, and again, I won't name names because my, my goal is not to, you know, criticize any author because some of the books are terrific, terrific. 
But there were things in them about the early days that didn't make sense. You know, when you read them, you're like, no, this could not possibly be. Um, so, you know, it just came out of frustration, actually. In fact, I think I even mentioned that in the intro or the preface. It's like, you know, a lot of books are born out of, um, you know, the need to educate or entertain or, you know, things like that. This book almost came out of a, of a, of a frustration. So it's like, okay, I don't quite follow the story. I don't, I'm not sure if anyone has really gotten it. I'm fascinated by origin stories. I think as a kid growing up, I love Batman. I love Bruce Wayne, how he becomes Batman. The whole that whole origin story, I just love that. Um, so I thought, well, that's been an interesting period in the Beach Boy history. And you know, I'm not going to write about Smile and Pet Sound. It's, it's that that part of their career has been really, really well documented. Um, so I looked at the whole career and I thought, well, what era you know has not really been covered in depth? And I thought the origin story, I thought how they met, you know, and going back. And then, of course, you know, it's my first book that I ever wrote. And, and you, you know, you, you, comp, you know, you get this huge manuscript and it becomes a bit unwieldy. And, you know, like, how do you how do you rope it in and control it? Um, because it turned out to be like almost writing like these little biographies of so many different people. Titan Dorinda Morgan, Russ Reagan, Nick Benet, Joe Saraceno, uh, the Dix Brothers, the history of the, you know, the Candix Records. And then the Wilsons and the Loves and the Jardines and the Marks. <laughs> and you're like, okay, how do you weave all this together into one story? Um, uh, but anyway, I think the short answer to the long question is, uh, is I thought that was the one era that I can make a contribution to. And as I was writing and as the manuscript starts to take change or, or form rather, I thought, yeah, I think I've got something here. I think, I think I've got something. Because I was um, <clears throat> really, really... Um, determined to, to try to track down as many people that I could speak to um, and, and convince them to talk to me and, and, and share their experience in, the, in the, their role in the, in the Beach Boys early career. You know, one of the advantages that I had too is, you know, um, you know because my, my writing was going to stop at the end of 63, I was always able to tell people in Beach Boy Associates that, you know, this is not about the bad years. This is not about the problems that pre crept into the band or, you know, uh, you know, touring or, you know, the, the substance abuse or anything like that. These were the happy years. These were the growing years, the coming into their talent, the discovery, the, the recording process, the early tours. These were all happy stories. Um, and that worked for a lot of people, you know, but a lot of people, you'd be surprised. I mean, Russ Reagan could not have been nicer. You know, a lot of these guys are gone now. Saraceno's gone. Um, you know, Benet was gone already when I when I when I sought to write the book, but his son Nick Benet Jr. is very much alive, and a lot of his um uh, his, his paramours, you know, Nick Benet was quite the ladies' man. Um, <laughs> they they're, they they are still very much with us, and you know they were able to shed some light on on Nick as well. Um, so you know some of these people are gone. Uh, I talked to two of the members of the four freshmen. You know they're both gone now. Bob Flanagan could not have been nicer. Um, I talked to him on a day when he was minding his granddaughter. I could hear her in the background. He was telling me all about how they came up. You know how they how they approached their vocals. Um, so you know a lot of these folks are gone, and so I'm happy to you know I'm happy to have documented some of their um, some of their I think a little bit more in depth interviews about the Beach Boys. Well, you certainly uh, got some people to talk. And I mean, uh, some of the ones that come to mind, Judy Bowles. I mean, you know, here's someone that you think might not want to talk so much, but but she shared some very intimate uh, memories with you. And, and, you know, these are people that were very present, you know, at that time. Jody Gable, uh, who ran the fan club, is, is another one. So uh, amazing to have their input into this book. 
Yeah, the one I'm really proud about, Jody was really, really helpful. She has a great memory. Uh, you could trust her memory. The things she told you were absolutely spot on. Um, you know, she, you know, had a tremendous input on them. You know, she saw them very, very early on. Um, I think she saw them in Burbank, California at the Olive Recreation Center uh, in late December of 61. So very early. Loved them right away. Um, you know, saw something about them. Um, contacted Murray, I think, and, you know, became the president of the first fan club. And, um, you know, was very much involved with the band, you know, for the first early years, those formative years that I, that I chose to write about. Um, and her memory was terrific. So she was a huge asset to the book. She just helped tremendously. Um, Judy Bowles was another one where, you know, reading all the, all the books and all the secondary sources, you know, you, you can't help but come away with the question of, no one's ever talked to Judy. Uh, she's not quoted in any books. Um, Let's just quickly say, for those who don't know, that was Brian's first serious girlfriend. They were engaged, and she's apparently the uh, inspiration for Surfer Girl. Correct. Surfer Girl and uh, and obviously the song Judy, you know, that that remain unreleased from the uh, early Morgan recordings. But yeah, they dated for about two and a quarter years. Um, He buys her an engagement ring, you know, um, you know, a little diamond and uh, that she was so proud of her. And uh, they were going to get married, you know, and then their lives go, you know, largely divergent. You know, he's, you know, this is late 63. And, you know, his, his life is, you know, he's on a roller coaster with writing, recording, producing, touring, you know, and, and her life was not that, was not that. And um, he had already met Marilyn at Pandora's Box and there was a spark there and, you know, they, it was not meant to be. Um, but tracking Judy down, you know, I really wanted to talk to Judy because I thought, you know, okay, she dated him for two and a quarter years. She was with him before the Beach Boys formed. She was with them while they're writing surfing and doing the first recordings for Candix. And then she's with them for a good amount of time while they're on Capitol. I mean, she's got to have a wealth of information and stories. It was just fantastic. I've got hours and hours and hours of recorded interviews with her. And, um, and my commitment to her was that I would never say anything that would embarrass her or, you know, be too private. Um, that I just wanted to have her perspective on him. And, you know, she really loved him. Boy, she said he was something else. She said he was funny. He was sharp. He was out of the box. He would just do anything at, at, the, at the moment. Um, you know, and she was just really, really taken by him. But again, there's a big age difference. You know, she's like 14 going on 15, I think, and he's already 19. It was a big age difference, actually, between them. Judy was a terrific find, actually. Um, and she, one of the things that I always got a kick out of, she said, you know, I read every book about the Beach Boys. She said, I, I go to the store and I buy it. And I got to be honest, I look at the table of contents, or the index, rather, and uh, I look up my name and I see where I am in the book. And I, and I read that. I, I read the whole book, but I kind of read where I am first. And she said, and I get so mad because, you know, they always say I've got blue eyes and blonde hair. And I don't have blue eyes, I have brown <laughs> eyes. I am very proud of my brown eyes. And her hair was, you know, was more like dirty blonde, I guess, sandy, sandy brown or sandy blonde or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I was able to track down um, some photos of her too, you know, uh, knowing what high school she went to and her yearbooks, um, which I put in the book too, because I thought, you know, this is kind of cool because, you know, Judy was a huge part of Brian's early life. I mean, you know, um, clearly writes Surfer Girl about her. And that was um, verified by Jody Cable, actually. Jody and Judy do not know each other. Um, and, and Jody told me, like, without Judy Bowles, there'd be no Surfer Girl. There certainly wouldn't be no Judy. 
if you read the lyrics to Judy, um, it's about their relationship. You know, and it, and and Judy Bowles was a surfer. She had her own surfboard. She was a bit of a tomboy. She had, you know, she grew up with brothers in her family, two twins, uh, uh, and she'd be down at the beach surfing. You know, so I, you know, I, I extrapolated a little bit in the book of thinking of, like, you know, could one day Brian have been at the beach and he was not, you know, a, a particularly adept surfer, um, but could he have been watching her, you know, you know, paddling out on the boards and the sun going down and this very romantic scene, you know, as the inspiration for Surfer Girl, you know, so, um, so yeah, finding Judy and getting her to talk to me was, was a huge highlight, huge highlight. And, There's uh, a great story, and I hope I'm characterizing it correctly, mm -hmm. that you have in the book where it sounds like Brian's penning a breakup letter to her right to her face. Like they were there together and he's like writing this, this letter just as things were kind of falling apart or am I off the yeah, mark? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one of the frustrating things and this happens, you know, and it, and it is what it is was I remember asking Judy, you know, well into our interviews, you know, um, but pretty early on still, Hey, did you keep a diary? No. Did you keep a journal? No. Did you have any photographs of Brian? I did but my daughter took them to show and tell at school and she lost them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my heart sank with that. Um, did you keep the diamond ring that he gave you? I did for a long time, but then I hopped it. Um, and it wound up in some pawn shop. And I always thought to myself, perhaps some young girl who's not, perhaps not young anymore, perhaps she's well in her late 60s or 70s by now, um, still has a little diamond ring that Brian Wilson <laughs> and Audrey Wilson picked out for Judy back in 63 she didn't keep the ring she didn't keep um uh, i said how about cards christmas cards birthday cards nope didn't keep them didn't keep them didn't have anything actually um and she had photographs where he would sign them you know love you know dear judy love brian um and she had one on her bureau for years and years and years and he had had that uh, very very severe crew cut that was very popular back in the early 60s sometimes and um and it just disappeared. You know, her daughter took it to school and it got lost. <laughs> it got lost. So you're like, as a writer, historian, you're like, oh man, Judy, why did that happen? So, but that, that's those are the those those are the ups and downs of, uh, of doing the research. Jim, uh, you're talking about, of course, interviews and research, but it's also uh, you're looking at at it as a collector. When did you start? Be, when did your collecting begin? It, preceded of course this book mm -hmm. and how did it help you uh per, you know dive into this uh amazing book you wrote sometimes you wish you don't have that gene the collecting gene of a are there 10 things out there and i've only got nine i must find number 10. Mm -hmm. um so but i just started buying singles i just started buying the singles and we already had the albums and then you know, I got into sheet music and all the sleeves. I must have like 600, you know, um, all the international sleeves that are in that great book, This Whole World, um, from Manfred in Germany. Um, yeah, I just started collecting and collecting. And then, you know, I've got a great 61 to 63 collection. Um, one of the things from your collection that impressed me was uh, the Murray Wilson records. I mean, uh, yeah. we see uh, Two Step, Side Step, performed by Johnny Lee Willis, which which we knew about. But then I'll Hide My Tears by the Jets. I, I didn't know about that one. And, and I think what your book brings to light is Murray was actually perhaps more prolific in, in his musical endeavors than, mm. than perhaps uh, a lot of people knew. Absolutely. Absolutely. Murray gets, you know, he's a he's a complex character actually you know and you know we're all flawed you know we all have strengths and weaknesses and Murray certainly had his um but he was he was 
out there doing it. You know, here's a middle class guy, you know, with a high school education, uh, three young children, you know, boys two years apart, living in a two bedroom bungalow, you know, um, you know, struggling, fighting with his business. You know, he goes from working for the gas company to the tire company where he has the industrial accident and loses his eye. You know, and then forges, you know, forges out on his own with the uh, able and the, the renting, renting of heavy equipment and things like that. And of course, he's got a constant reminder every time he gets together with his sister, who's married to Milton Love. And, you know, just look at the, where uh, the Wilson brothers grew up and look where the Love, the six Love siblings grew up. And it doesn't take a big leap to fill in the fact that Murray probably had a little professional jealousy or, you know, some, some family jealousy there every time he packed up the kids and drove over to uh, to the Love residence there. Um, so, you know, Murray, you know, he, he had a, you know, it was not easy for him, actually, you know? And, you know, he's born in, what, 1917, so he's born at the end of, uh, you know, World War One. You know, he comes comes of, uh, comes of age uh, during the Great Depression. Um, you know, he's not eligible for the uh, World War Two. So a lot of, a lot of big, traumatic events in, in Murray Wilson's life, um, you know, Loves music, you know, um, doesn't have a beautiful voice, but, you know, he, he writes some pretty, you know, some pretty nice songs and he's pretty prolific. And, you, you know, you do some research in the Library of Congress and the Copyright Office and just eBay and, you know, online auction sites. So, yeah, I made it a kind of a thing of mine to collect Murray Wilson records, actually. And I have no idea what I'm going to do with these things someday. You know, maybe, maybe the Smithsonian will take them off my hands. Uh, but, you know, I've got 78s, I've got 45s. I, you know, I try to cover as every version I can, actually. Um, and I give a little plug to George Faulkner, actually. George and I became friends when George was doing his, um, his Murray Wilson tribute album. And, uh, and, and George is a good researcher, too, actually. He and I have shared a lot of emails and a lot of you know, things like that. In fact, I want, I want to work on a, uh, a Murray Wilson discography for my website, actually, to try to you know, come up with a full, uh, a full discography of Murray's um, of his recordings. Yeah, you know, and that's where the boys get their, you know, you know, whether it's genetic or through DNA or not, that's hard to say. But but certainly they grow up in a home where music is loved and appreciated and played, and, you know, and they had, you know, they want records and they listen to music. And, you know, and of course, you know, you know, they have all this burgeoning talent that uh, that you know is on tap at an early age. But you know, Murray at least set the scene for that. You know, he may have done some horrible things and been overly, you know, overly aggressive with his discipline. But there's an interesting thing about Murray. You talk to all the guys that were his sort of contemporaries, Russ Reagan, Joe Saracino, the Morgans, um, um, Fred Vail, you know, other folks. Um, their walls tell you that, you know, Murray was not unlike their own father. You know, that World War II generation of men coming mm -hmm. out, trying to be the sole breadwinner having three kids close in age and close quarters, not easy. It was not easy. So, and, and it's not, you know, I'm never an apologist for Murray Wilson. I'm not, you know, um, you know, forgiving some of the behavior and the stories that we've all read about. Um, but he did a lot of good for his boys. You know, um, you know, Brian had, you know, uh, uh, music lessons at an early age, which it turned out he did not need to, need to have. Carl had a guitar for Christmas with an amplifier. He had lessons with John Moss of the, the Walker Brothers. Uh, you know, he and David. Um, uh, he had, you know, Brian was a natty dresser in high school. Supposedly, Florsheim floor shoes, which were the rage back then. Um, you know, he was always. He had a car for his uh, for my senior year of high school. He had a car. It was a used car, but it was a car. You know, so on a middle class salary in the early '60s, late '50s. You know, Murray was doing okay for his boys. You know. Um, I talked to one guy that went to um, uh, Dennis, Dennis Wilson's 10th birthday party. 
And he said Murray had taken all the furnishings out of the house or pushed them to the side. And he put down like mattresses and pillows and things like that. And there's just a free-for-all. All these 10-year-old boys jumping on each other, the horseback rides. And Murray was in there with in the, in the thick of it, you know, having, having a great old time. So, you know, I think he was a he was a loving father in the way that he, you know, he could show his love. And I wasn't there in the house, so I don't know what the truth is. You know, none of us were, of course. You know, we've all read the stories. But also bear in mind that a lot of the bad stories don't surface until Murray is gone. You know, Murray is already, you know, he, he, he passed away. And then a lot of the bad stories start to surface, which I've always found interesting. And also a lot of the bad stories have their root in Nick Finney. Well, Nick Finney, in my opinion, has a reason to, to kind of take it out on Murray. Um, you know, Finney is 23 years old when he started with Capitol Records in September of 1960. Um, three years later, he's gone. Um, and he was the he was the wonderkin. You know, he was like the brand new producer. You know, he, 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 he was given uh, Lou Rawls. He was given the Letterman. Uh, uh, you know, and then he, and then he winds up with the Beach Boys. You know, but of course, Brian and Murray are like, you know, wait a second, we don't need Nick Finney. We don't need the old studio system of, uh, of a signed producer. We can produce these records on our own. And basically, they come up with this, you know, brilliant formula. Hey, let us produce our own records. We'll deliver you a hit. And they, they had this track record in 62 and 63 that, you know, hard to beat. Um, but when, when Murray goes to Voyle Gilmore at Capitol Records and says, listen, we don't want to work with this guy anymore. Well, that doesn't do, that doesn't stand too well with Nick Benet. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a, you know, he's an executive producer. He wasn't placing the microphones and, and working the, the dials. He was just pulling the strings together. You know, you know, he was booking the time and booking the musicians and, you know, he was the executive producer. Brian was the real producer in the studio. Um, and, and Murray had his input too, of course, but it was, it was largely Brian. Um, so, you know, Benet, Benet is gone. Now, whether he leaves on his own accord or whether he gets ticked off, I'm not sure. You know, there's nothing in the, in the music press about that, and I can never, I can never find it out. Um, but by September, October of 63, Benet is gone from Capitol Records. He's an independent producer. Um, so, you know, in the, Tom, in, the, in the Nolan piece in Rolling Stone in the early 70s, you know, you know Benet takes it out on Murray. You know, I mean, he takes Murray to, to you know, to, to death. So, but you got to consider the source. <clears throat> you know, you get a reason to, to dislike money, I think. Characters that loom very large in your book, of course, are the Morgans. So Height, Dorinda, uh, and their son, Bruce. And so, you know, for those who don't know, this is uh, these are the people that recorded the, these demos in 61 and 62 that really uh, got things rolling. And, um, you know, those recordings you know, have, have come out in various forms. I, I have right with me. I'm going to show you, uh, you'll be familiar with this one, Jim, uh, the oh, Beach Boys yeah. greatest hits, they call it this, uh, this was released by wand. Uh, and I got this because I was dating a woman who's, uh, this is like 25 years ago, whose mother was a Beach Boys fan and, and must've picked this up, uh, in the late sixties or early seventies. I mean, you know, talk about misleading advertising, the Beach Boys greatest hits. And, uh, so this has some of those Morgan recordings of like surfer girl and Barbie and Luau, but then it's got, you know, instrumentals by the surf and six, uh, little deuce coop, for example, um, spelled wrong. Yeah. And anyway, so I mean, there have been a lot of legal problems with these recordings, a lot of different versions, and, and you detail this uh, quite excellently in, in, in the book. So obviously, Bruce Morgan, who's still around, uh, you, you had his trust and, you know, you ended up writing the liner notes uh, for the 2016 uh, release 
becoming the Beach Boys, the complete height and Dorinda Morgan sessions. Um, but yeah, what, what, what a history. And I'm wondering how did, how did that come out without any problems, given the fact that w- when Brad Elliott tried to release this stuff with a lot of studio chatter back in 2000, like brother records went crazy and, and went after them and, and a whole legal saga uh, came out of that. Yeah, well, you know, obviously I knew I wanted to talk to, I knew Height and Dorinda were gone, unfortunately, so I knew no one had really captured their story. Um, although when you read the Byron Price book that came out in 79, it was clear that Byron Price had talked to the Morgans, had talked to Dorinda, I think. And, you know, he's got, you know, he's got little quotes there. If you're familiar with, with Price's book, it's, it's sort of episodic with quotes. He tells the Beach Boys story through their own words, basically, and a lot of quotes you know, throughout it. Um, so I thought, well, you know, maybe Byron has more in his uh, in his research materials, and maybe he, he taped some of the interviews, things that would make sense to me now. You know, maybe things that didn't make sense then, or maybe you know, whatever she said that didn't work its way into the book, maybe I could use that. Byron died tragically in an automobile accident, I think, on Long Island. I forget what year. Um, but I, I talked to his widow, who was really, really nice, really wonderful woman, um, and and she said he had like a, a all his writing. He was a pack rat, first of all, which gave me a lot of hope. Um, uh, and he had all kinds of things, you know, and, and it was clear when you read his book that he had access to uh, some of the smile tapes that were floating around his bootlegs at the time. Because he writes extensively about the smile of his woman. Um, but I was interested in whether or not he had any tapes or, or research from the Morgans. Um, it turned out he did not. She could not find any. Um, it was, you know, just it was a dead end, basically. So I thought, okay, well, he was one of the few authors, I think, that spoke to Dorinda. I don't think David did, David Leaf, um, and then subsequent writers, I don't, I don't believe, actually spoke to the Morgans. And then, of course, at one point, she's gone. And that little memoir that she wrote that wound up in the Lost and Found um, CD from uh, DC, DCC or DC Classics or whatever, um, is deeply flawed, you know, that little memoir that she wrote. So anyway, my only hope was, was to talk to Bruce. So um, I tracked Bruce down and... and my, my thing with Bruce was, hey, listen, I don't think your parents ever got their full credit for their role in the Beach Boys history. I would love in writing this book to tell their story, to tell their complete story, who they were, where they were, where they came from, you know, their whole history in the music industry. Um, and, and then distill it down to a hopefully a readable chapter and how they interface with the Beach Boys life. And of course, it's through Murray. You know, I mean, you know, Murray, Murray meets the Morgans because he's looking for a music publisher. Um, so, you know, Murray has known them for a good four or five years before the Beach Boys actually go down there and record surfing. Um, so that's another influence of, of Murray, of Murray being, you know, somewhat on the fringes of the music industry. But, um, you know, the Morgans have this rich, rich discography. I have their, you have their discography. Yeah, I do. I have their discography on the website, becomingthebeachboys.com, just loaded with um, supplemental stories that didn't make their way into the book because of uh, space constrictions. Um, but they've got this phenomenal um discography and they worked with you know struggling artists basically and they would make demos for them and the demos became their calling card and they had a fairly you know fairly good number of hits and, and success actually um they worked with a lot of uh, r&b artists and a lot of black artists a lot of chicano artists in los angeles um and they were just as middle-aged companies you know a couple rather um you know he was not so much a songwriter although he's credited on a lot of the songs it was really her um, but Bruce told me his mother was just this, this most giving person. You know, she believed everybody had songwriting potential in them. And she would encourage people to write songs. And, and songwriting came easy to her, even though she was not a trained musician. Um, she would go to a copyist and someone who would, you know, who would do a lead sheet for her. 
Um, and a lot of times they would get credit for doing the lead sheet. You know, the, the, the music industry was so was so rife with uh, with fraud back then. You know, as far as copyright and the songwriting credit and things like that. But she was a very prolific songwriter. Um, you know, all the songs that are credited for Bruce Morgan were really written by Dorinda. You know, I mean, Bruce might, you know, by his own admission, had you know some some input in it, maybe lyrically or an idea or two or whatever. But they were largely written by Dorinda. Um, so she was the one that had this love for music and. And Hype basically financed it. You know, he had this, um, you know, paving, you know, he would do, uh, he had this um, master floor company, it was called, and he would do flaws and, you know, commercial flooring and things like that. And it was very, very hard work, but very lucrative. Um, and then that money would basically fund Dorinda's uh, songwriting efforts. Um, yeah, they never, they had a couple of big hits, you know, Dedicated to You was one. Um, the Man Upstairs was another one by K-Star. You know, K-Star was on Capitol Records at the time. So they had a couple, you know, a couple of big hits, um, a couple of uh, BMI awards, things like that. Um, and that basically they were the conduit for the boys. You know, they had, um, they made demos in their home on Mayberry Street. They had a studio called Stereo, Stereo Masters on Melrose. Um, and that's where the boys basically, you know, cut their teeth with those early recordings. Um, so again, it's a, it's a hard connection, actually. I was wondering if we could maybe uh, go through quickly, uh, track by track, uh, off that CD from from 2016, and and just whatever kind of observation comes into your head that that, that you discovered, maybe you'd want to uh, chip in. I mean, it starts with surfing, of course. This is the, uh, you know, the the song that starts it all, the Beach Boys' first single, and. Uh, I have to say, you know, I've been I've been listening and re-listening to all these takes. I, I think the energy and the appeal of that song still survives to this day. I think you're right, Mark, actually. And one thing that I was struck by, by all those early recordings, those nine songs over, you know, maybe three sessions at the tops, is how good they were. Right out of the bat, right out of the box, so to speak. You know, these were not just kids going in there fumbling around or whatever. They were pretty good. I mean, they were those recording shows show evidence of rehearsals, in my opinion. Um, but they were good. The talent was there. I mean, the harmonies were there. You could you could see it. So that's kind of the, the beautiful thing I think that you come away with listening to those to those early recordings. Um, and also the lyrics of surfing. Um, you know, I think it was you know you listen to some of the um, you know what's called the garage tapes actually that came out as a bootleg. Um, and you know it's 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 them rehearsing. You know, and I I listen to those things. I can't tell you how many times until my you know <laughs> until my eyes were spinning around in my head. You know, transcribing every little bit of dialogue in the background. But if you listen to those um, those basement tapes, actually, it's the it's the rehearsal sessions for surfing um, at their home. Um, I think it's clear that the, that the lyrics to surfing were written by the group. Actually, um, you know, Brian and Mike walk away with the credit for the song, uh, but Dennis clearly had some input in that in that song. Um, and it's kind of eerie in a way. But you listen to some of their their. Uh, their conversations and the chatter in, the, in those tapes, there's already a little bit of an antagonism over like, you know, who, who gets credit for this? And, you know, and, you know, the comment is like, you know, well, it's not going to matter, you know, because, you know, if we don't get this down, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. We're not going to make any money anyway. So who cares? You know, so I was, I was thinking, holy geez. I mean, even at an early stage like this, you know, a little bit of that is creeping in. And they haven't even had their first record yet. You know, so that's a kind of a, a, an aside, but, but the lyrics to surfing, you know, you listen to surfing or read the lyrics, they're really good. They're really good, I think. I mean, for their first effort, for their first really recorded song, you know, they're pretty good lyrics. And Mike delivers, you know, Mike has this great facility with uh, 
rapid fire delivery and his enunciation and his vocal, you know, so he, you know, he adds so much to that record. You know, I mean, the, the, the musical track is very simple, of course, you know, I mean, they're just growing, you know, as, as musicians and, and, and Brian's production. But Mike's vocal and his lyrics are really what make that record. Um, uh, so to me, for that first hit, it's like, you know, yeah. And, and if Candix had had a better uh, network of pressing more records and a better distribution network, uh, it would have gone higher, you know, on the national charts in Billboard and, uh, and uh, in Cashbox. You mentioned uh, how good their first song and uh, really the whole, uh, uh, those lists that we're going to go through, how good that is. I, and, and, I, and when I hear surfing, I always make a comparison. Yeah, the Beatles also came out, not at the exact same time, but how does the first song of the Beach Boys compare to the first song, so to speak, recorded or released of the Beatles? And one thing I think people forget is, and maybe uh, you both mentioned this, it's that this, they were just starting, this was just their first shot Whereas the Beatles had, I don't know the number of years, but years of, of um, working together as a group, forming a group, playing live two, three, four times a day. So it's just that to me is another aspect of how good this is, considering how early and embryonic it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when the Beatles come to America in February of 64, I mean, they've got this huge catalog of songs. So, you know, they burst upon the charts with hit after hit after hit. And that, that, that adds to the phenomena of Beatlemania. And then, of course, Hard Day's Night, who's just genius. You know, by making the movie, um, you know, the Beatles never age in that movie. You can watch that movie now and feel like you're back in, you know, back in the mid-60s and watching and getting caught up in the Beatles excitement now. I, I still watch Hard Day's Night and think, you know, oh, man, these guys were so good. They're so <laughs> cool. Absolute genius to make that movie. I mean, that's a huge part of the Beatle myth. The Beatles, the Beatles legend, but yeah, they come on the scene with you know just a stockpile of songs. The Beach Boys are not; they have they have they ramp up so fast it's not funny. They're, you know they're recording Serpent Safari, the first album, over three sessions in August and September of '62, and they're struggling for songs. You know, I mean Brian's working with Mike; he's working with Gary Usher. You know, they they do a couple of covers. You know, they do Moon Dog, they do uh, Little Miss uh, Miss America. You are my Miss America. You know, they're, they're, filling this, they're filling the album, actually. They only have one outtake from that album, Land Ahoy, you know, which only gets bumped from the album after they decide to put Serpent on it. And they lease Serpent, and the Morgans were really good to them, actually. The Serpent, you know, Morgans were happy to have the album, the song on the album, because they own the publishing. And that's where all the money is. It's in the publishing, not the songwriting. Um, but they were happy to have Serpent on the Serpent Safari album. And they, they gave Capital, you know, free, free range of music, but they got, they got some money from it when the album sells. Um, but yeah, they were struggling to find songs for that first album, you know. And then um, uh, Mike Borchetta. Mike Borchetta is a great guy. He's done in, I think, uh, Nashville now. I think he's involved in the country music industry or whatever. But he was a Capitol promo guy. So I tracked him down and talked to him. And, uh, you know, he told me, like, after 10 little Indians, you know, Brian told him, you know, oh, man, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, 10 little Indians. I think it was an Ill, Ill, ill-chosen follow-up to Surf and Safari, you know, yeah. uh, a, a discordant picture sleeve, that's for sure, you know, holding a surfboard, but the song is 10 Little Indians. Um, yeah, they sh- I think they should have went with Chuggalug, yeah. um, which, which, which was talked about at one point. Actually, Brian mentions it on tape to an interview, you know, Chuggalug's going to be our next song. It would have been a much better follow-up. It's, you know, we'll never know what it would have done, of course. We made a cool picture sleeve, though. Um, but, uh, you know, so Tangled Indians tanks, I think it's stalled at 49 or something like that. And Brian is hitting the panic button. 
it's like, you know, oh man, our career is already over, you know? And then they come back with, um, and Borchetta claimed that he said, you know, hey, why don't you try doing something, you know, like a Chuck Berry kind of thing, you know? So, um, and again, I, I, I can't swear to the veracity of that story, but um, the whole idea of, you know, Sweet Little 16 and Surfing USA and, you know, the idea that Brian is so, um, so naive and, you know, not a malicious bone in his body, you know, he kind of copies the music to, uh, to Sweet Little 16. Chuck Berry is in prison at the time, you know, for the Man Act, Man Act violation, um, but his music publishing company, ARC, and the attorneys that manage that, you know, they listen to Surfing USA and they're like, wait a second, wait a second, we own that music. Uh, <laughs> and how that happens is just mind boggling. How that got past Capitol, because on the Surfing USA label, um, it's clearly ARC music publishing. So they give Chuck Berry's music publishing company full credit on the label. How they didn't anticipate that there would be legal problems and, and all that, but you know, these boys don't make any money from that song. You know, I mean, that was just a, that was just a you know, crazy, <laughs> crazy chapter in rock and roll history. Uh, but that's the song that bounces them back. That, you know, I mean, they record that in you know, January of 63 and it's out by March. And, you know, it rises up the charts, you know, and they're off and running. And of course, by that point, Brian had given Surf City to, uh, to, you know, to Jane and Dean, you know, much to the chagrin of uh, Murray Wilson, you can imagine that. And, you know, you can't blame Murray for that. You know, you think about it, like, you know, Brian, what are you doing that for? You know, Surfing USA is our first record. The Beach Boys would have, they would have been better to, to have done what Jan and Dean wanted and given them Surfing USA, you know, because then they would have had Surf City, probably had a number one hit and would have made a lot more money. Yeah, exactly. Right. They would have had, they would have had all the money from Surf City and Jane and Dean would have been answering the letters to uh, Chuck Berry's attorney. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what should have happened. That's what should have happened. Yeah. Uh, Luau. Uh, so I'm wondering, so it has been said before that Bruce Morgan wrote that, but is that incorrect? Is it really Dorinda who, who wrote uh, yeah. that one? Yeah, Bruce told me that was largely his mother who wrote that. Yeah, she was she was very she was like Brian in that respect. Actually, she was very free with writing credits. And also it was a source of some income, you know, so, you know, Bruce is in his early 20s at the time, still living at home. Um, and, you know, she was she was happy to give him songwriting credit and whatever revenue that generated. The Morgan's big thing was, was they knew that um, the B side was was the place to be, basically. You know, in other words, if the A side went up the charts, it dragged the B side with it. You know, there was no separating the two, of course. So if you had a B-side song that you owned the music publishing to and the A-side was a big hit, you were in the money. And, and that's all they really wanted. So when a lot of times they made these deals with these, with these artists, and that's the, that's the deal they made with the Beach Boys, of course, is, you know, we'll let you have the A-side, but we want the B-side. And so, you know, so Luau winds up on the B-side. Um, so... Yeah, it's funny. Al Jardine does that song now in, in his uh, solo show. You know, so it's really kind of cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. To hear. Him I, I always got out. the feeling that the the boys had a soft spot for that particular number. I think it's on the Beach Boys Party album, which came out in '65, that they're sitting around supposedly thinking of songs to to do. And I think it's Dennis or somebody else out in the background. Luau. Wow. You know, <laughs> so it seemed like they never forgot that one. Yeah. Lavender is a very pretty song, actually. And uh, so that was written by Dorinda. Mm -hmm. And and to yeah. me, it sounds like the four freshmen. It's got those kind of harmonies to it. Oh, I mean, yeah. you could see why the Beach Boys would like singing that one. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Brian does a beautiful job on that. I mean, when that first came out on the DCC compact disc, you know, uh, of Austin Found, that was just, you know, a revelation. I mean, that was just gold for Beach Boys fans who love that early stuff. It's like, what? 
There's a song called Lavender, you know, with this beautiful vocal that it was recorded in the 61. So yeah, that was, that was terrific. Yeah, the other songs on that, uh, you know, on the on the Omnivore, the two CD, um, uh, the complete Height and Dorinda Morgan sessions that Brad Rosenberger and Omnivore Records did in 2016, um, you know, that I was honored to, to loan the title and, um, and did the liner notes for. You know, there's some revelations about Serpent Girl too there, too, on the recording. And I think, you know, Brad, I think being, um, you know, he had been with Warner Brothers. Uh, Omnivore is an extremely respected label, actually. They do a lot of, you know, cool Beach Boy stuff. Um, a big Beach Boy fan. I was a huge Warner Brothers fan. Brad Rosenberg, a really, really nice guy. Funny as can be. Really, really nice guy. Um, and, you know, I think he took it to the Beach Boy management and said, hey, listen, you know, we've got this book out. And why don't we do, you know, every every snippet of tape from the Morgan sessions? And, you know, he was able to make it happen. Jim, I know Mark has taken us through these songs, but just quickly, sure. uh, just love how, listening to you, to your uh, detective talk about, you know, this period of time. Just is there another period of, if you had had to do another one, is there another period of time? Maybe that compact two, three years? Well, what I have always been captivated about is that 69, they're getting ready to leave Capitol and they're signing with Warner Brothers and the early 70s. Sunflower, Surf's Up, uh, Call on the Passions, and Holly. That era, that, that's the era that I would write about, actually. So, so you got to plan it so that this comes out at the same time as the Field Flows box set. So I hope you're far along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, had I, had I um, delved into it when I had the thought of it many years ago, it would have been a co completely coincidental, but it would have been viewed as marketing genius, actually. But it would have been absolutely accidental. But that was the thought was was that that era there because I think it is so rich and so interesting and just so. I've got the chapters outlined. I've got titles and all this stuff. It's such a great period in the history. So yeah, that's why I'm just so looking well, forward to it. Stay healthy no, and Sandy, get the book it. Is not, Sandy, the book is nowhere near along at all. So. Well, stay healthy and please get it done. We'd love it. We'd love to see it. <laughs> so, so as releases like that prove, and as your book proves, there is still more to learn about America's greatest band. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's what keeps Endless Summer Quarterly going and these podcasts going. And, you know, the fact that there can even be new books about the Beach Boys. It's just it's, uh, it's such a satisfying musical journey. That, you know, whether you like the early days, I mean, there's so many different rich periods, the Pet Sound, Smile era, the, 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 the era that we talked about, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, even the late 70s. I mean, the music changes and, you know, the, the albums get criticized a little bit. You know, they're not quite as stellar as some of the other stuff. But, um, but each era has, you know, has a lot to say about it. Um, and let's face it, most artists, you know, the, the, the muse burns out after a while. You know, the muse can only burn so bright for so long. You know, and some guys, you know, like a Springsteen or whatever, you know, his, you know, his muse seems to never burn out. Um, but, uh, you know, their muse has lasted a long time. This is great, Jim. Uh, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to add? Um, no, not really. I think as far as the, you know, I mean, as far as the book goes, it's just... Um, I think I'm really grateful that fans have responded to it. Um, when it first came out, I got a call from Copenhagen, actually. This fellow tracked me down, got my phone number, I'm in the book, not that hard to find. And he called me at home and you know, it was a different connection and he spoke very good English. You know, you know, I, I don't speak any Danish at all, so he spoke great English in my opinion. 
And he just loved the book. He said, I saw them when they first came to uh, Copenhagen. And I love them ever since. And I've always been curious about the early days. And he just wanted to thank me for writing the book. And I remember getting off the phone and telling my wife, um, Bernadette, uh, who came up with the title of the book, by the way. Uh, I was going to call it, uh, I couldn't call it First Wave because Brad Elliott had that. Brad Elliott was going to call it his collection First Wave years ago. So that was taken. Although I love that title, First Wave, because it was very descriptive. And I was going to call it Swell or Tiny Wave. or you know, It was kind of Swell. Gonna, I yeah, love it. Yeah, I was going to come up with all these ideas for, you know, what's, what's a baby wave called or whatever. Yeah, anyway, it was going nowhere. So my wife, who proofread the book, actually, and who the book is dedicated to, um, you know, she said, well, you know, it's about how they became the Beach Boys. So she said, why don't you just call it Becoming the Beach Boys? And it was like this light bulb moment. It was like, yeah, of course. You know, and, you, know you got the alliteration. It, it was perfect. It was, that, that was it. It was set in stone. And Bruce Morgan obviously liked that title as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, well, Bruce and and uh, um, Brad Rosenberg. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad, yeah. Brad, Brad loved the title too. So yeah, so yeah, it's just a good descriptive title. So, um, so anyway, but, but I guess the main thing is um, is to hear from people who love the band as much as I did, and and, and still do, and just to, to say, you know, hey, I really enjoyed it. The, the rewards from writing a book are not financial. You know, I mean, you, you don't make any money writing a book. Um, I'd starve if I depended on the royalties, actually. Um, so it's not financial. It's about the personal accomplishment, the contribution to the band that you love and who has meant so much to you, um, and then hearing from people, the two of you and, and, and other people who know the band really, really well, who love the band, who have written about the band, who have studied the band, uh, and say, you know, I really like that book. That says it all. That, that is payment enough. It is an essential book for uh, for Beach Boys fans. Uh, I want to mention that you have a website as well, becomingthebeachboys.com, and you blog on that uh, website. And where can people get your book, Jim? Well, you can still get it from uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and directly from the publisher. And every now and then, uh, McFarland Books. Uh, uh, Mc, I would say the wrong. McFarland Books. I should really should get the publisher right, I suppose. Uh, every now and then, McFarland has a sale where they'll, they'll put things on sale. Um, so um, it's it's uh, it's still forty dollars. I think on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and directly from the publisher. Um, and it's crazy. I see copies of it on eBay sometimes for like ridiculous amounts of money. I'm like, why would anybody spend sixty or eighty dollars for this book when you can still get it from you know from your regular your regular retail outlets? So. Um, well, everyone should go out and uh, and and get that book. You will not be disappointed. Hmm. Phil, is there anything you wanted to add? Thank you, Mark. Uh, just to say again, thank you, Jim. Um, just kind of thinking about some of the little pieces of information you gave us that might have taken you literally uh, all day, hours, days upon days to, to hunt down. And that's just a couple lines or a paragraph. And uh, we're grateful. And thanks for all your work. That's really it. insightful, Phil, uh, um, because um, that that is something that you do come away with. Actually, it's like you know, okay, this one sentence, perhaps, or, or one paragraph in the book may have taken weeks to actually to get the hold of, to get the story right, and to write it, and to you know, massage it, kind of thing, and get it in there. So, and that's why it takes so long, you know. And if you're you know if you're doing it at night or your days off or weekends, you know, it just it just takes time. It's not. You know, but like anything in life, if you're if you're you know if you're passionate about it, if you feel you can make a contribution, 
and you really stick to it. You know, you just have to have that perseverance. Um, and and then it gets easier as it gets on because you, know, you start to see it take shape, and you start to realize that okay, I think I have something here. I think I, I think I think I can make something out of this. Um, but yeah, I think you were right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Definitely. I appreciate it so much. I really do. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, so glad you both enjoyed it. Thanks again, Jim, for joining us today. It's been great uh, to our listeners out there. I know this has been a tough year and we're grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with folks like Jim uh, who keep bringing us fresh insights uh, on the Beach Boys. And we're also grateful to you, the listeners, for tuning in and, and joining us for this ride. So thank you very much. All the best for 2021 and uh, come back soon and we'll do it again. <laughs>